Hi, I'm David Herskovitz, and you're listening to Light Culture, brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Based in Vancouver, Canada, Burb strives to build on the city's legacy of cannabis tolerance and its gift to the world, BC Bud. Follow us on Instagram, at ShopBurb, and subscribe to this podcast at shopburb.com forward slash lightculture. Before becoming the celebrated artist known as Swoon, Callie Curry was a self-described nerd growing up in Daytona, Florida. As a kid, her parents had been heroin addicts, and she carried lots of mental baggage with her as she made her way to art school in New York City. A consummate outsider who felt out of place in galleries and museums, she instead began her practice as a street artist, her monumental wheat paste prints attracting the attention of people like me, who instantly responded to the uniqueness and power of her work. But that was not enough for Swoon. Finding a place in Brooklyn's burgeoning artistic community, she used her organizing skills to make socially relevant work, combining her creative instincts to address waste and the environment to help rebuild Haiti after a devastating earthquake, and most recently, using art to connect with opioid addicts. Mighty projects as they might be, her biggest challenge has been her own trauma, her childhood experience that continues to haunt her many years after the fact. And that's why she's on the show today. On her Instagram, she's been very open about how taking psychedelics under the supervision of a therapist has helped her to deal with her family trauma. When I first contacted her to be on the podcast, she said that casual cannabis use was off the table. I literally need a babysitter, she said, but I sometimes do get a babysitter and have done deeply productive work with trained therapists and psychedelics. Is that something you'd like to talk about? Well, we go there and lots of other places. Lucky to be able to talk with Callie, as she prefers to be called, an artist determined to make the world a better place for herself as well as for others. Hi, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Light Culture. And today's guest, Callie Curry, a.k.a. Swoon. Swoon is an artist who has found her practice taking some surprising turns. At least that's how it appears to me at first. Yet the more I learned about her life and work, the more I felt that maybe this is how it was meant to be from the beginning. I mentioned your life and your work. Those are two powerful strands that come together in your art. Yet there's also a third dimension, which is a social practice, an aspect that includes a healing of old traumas and wounds, both personal and societal, which is already quite a bit, right? <laughs> and, and you haven't even been working for that long. <laughs> Although I'd been a fan of your work since I first spotted your wheat paste prints on the walls here and there, a phase when you identified more as a street artist, mm -hmm. I immediately was drawn into the power of your imagery. I fell deeper under your spell when hearing about a project of yours that involved fashioning a raft out of recycled <laughs> materials and taking it down the Mississippi. Several other artistic activations followed, 
that made me an even greater fanboy <laughs> that we'll talk about later. But what prompted me to ask you to be on my show was Instagram posts where you talked about how taking psychedelics under the supervision of a therapist mm -hmm. has been instrumental in dealing with family trauma. Mm -hmm. When I first contacted you to be on the podcast, you said that casual cannabis use was off the table. Mm -hmm. I can quote you, I literally need a babysitter, <laughs> <laughs> but I sometimes do get a babysitter and have done deeply productive work with trained therapists and psychedelics. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Is that something you'd like to talk about? Yeah. So, we, you know, thinking about cannabis and their relationship to to culture, you know, and we're people that really care about culture at a, at a level of excellence. You know, we're not really talking about culture casually, like we're kind of dedicating our lives to this thing. And so I always thought potheads are dysfunctional. You know, stoners. <laughs> yeah, stoners. Every once in a while, I throw out some kind of little nasty comment because obviously I can't smoke weed. Like I said, it's too, it affects me too much. And then a couple of my friends would be like, hey, like, can you not? Like, I am essentially like, and then I'd realize I'd be like, wait a minute, this person that I respect who's like at the lead of this huge project that's doing like cultural work at this high, high level, essentially, uh, you know, uses cannabis every single day. And, uh, and so that was like a big wake up for me to be like, this is not the stereotype that I grew up with. Exactly. It's a stigmatization. You know, we're still in a world that has spent billions of dollars a war on drugs to convince mm -hmm. us everything is terrible. <laughs> uh, that's yeah. you know basically plant-based right. and, and, and potentially mm -hmm. has huge uh, possibilities mm -hmm. for health and wellness. Are you still involved in uh, psychedelic therapy? I am, yeah. It's uh, a practice that's been ongoing for me every three to four months for uh, quite a few years now. I started with talk therapy and then I needed to go deeper and sort of, you know, the, we're really at the cutting edge of figuring out how we deal with trauma that's encoded in the nervous system. And so I was looking into all these different ways. And um, I really love the work of Gabor Mate. Do you know him? I know the name, but I haven't really read too yeah. much of that. So he's a doctor and he is one of the first people that really encapsulated for me the notion that serious drug addiction, you know, the, the to the level of, of where people are struggling with homelessness, where you where you're really getting into deep addiction, that nobody is ending up in that situation without a severe history of childhood trauma. And that was a big wake up call for me because I there was a lot about my own family that I didn't understand until I read his book. And what brought you to that book? It was my own family trauma. There was addiction was just rife in my family and I needed to understand them. And so the book is ostensibly about addiction, but it really gets into what the root causes of addiction are. And then he talks about ayahuasca because he says, he's like, when you get into these situations where, where people are struggling with preverbal trauma, it's very, very hard to access that stuff because you're not going to talk it out in a therapist's office because you don't remember it most of the time. And that really rung true for me because my parents were heavily addicted to heroin from when I was like zero to four years old. There was multiple mental breakdowns that went on in there. We were passed around all different family members, ending up all different kinds of places. And I don't remember almost any of it, but I sort of feel the effects of it and later events in my life. And I was able to work through tons of it in talk therapy, but there was still this like tension that I couldn't get at. The prescription to do ayahuasca, was that something in 
The writings of No, I just noticed him talking about it. I was watching videos of him and he was like he wasn't saying like everyone should do this. He was saying what if there are ways and like what if what if we start exploring what other cultures are doing? You know, he was just kind of asking questions. He did actually try to do some work directly with with addicts and ayahuasca and so that was where I started. But what I found is that that work was uh it was kind of too hard for me. I would go totally ballistic. I would have to get pulled out of the ceremony. I'd be fighting people. I mean, it was like a whole mess. Um and I was like, "Okay." So like and everyone was really kind about it. They were like, "No, it's fine, hon. You're working through some stuff." I was like, "Yeah, I'm obviously working yeah. through some stuff, but maybe I don't need to be putting you guys through this." <laughs> so it was a little too public is that part of it? I was so disruptive. I couldn't stop talking. Talking, I'd be ripping my hair out. I mean, all this kind of crazy thing. I'd be banging my head up against the floor, and people would be trying to, you know, help me, stop me from clawing my face. I mean, all these things. And then I'd be fighting them. I didn't, you know, and and I just felt like I was like I, I, I just probably wasn't a good thing to do, continue. Yeah, I just thought like I just thought like at the very least. Somebody needs to know what they're getting into and they need to like agree to it. Not just like me showing up being like, hey, y'all, <laughs> what might happen? But was it a hard process for you since you had that experience in your childhood mm-hmm. with the addiction in the, mm-hmm. in the family mm-hmm. to go to psychedelics as a solution for that? Did it seem like, what am I doing? I'm going right. to drugs to try to help me. Yeah. Of course, I thought about that, but it's not something I lingered over very long. The reason is that uh, psychedelics are an exploratory drug, so you're opening things up. You're not really soothing a pain, you know. And so, for me, when I think about addiction as a problem, I think about addiction as a way to soothe the pain. And when I work with psychedelics, first of all, it's not particularly enjoyable. <laughs> like, it's much more about opening up boxes and then spending the next three months processing that information. So it just doesn't feel like a like a typical drug experience it feels like a process and it's also given the time we're in where people are doing more and more of this i mean if you had you know looked into this some years ago it might have been a little bit harder harder right yeah, and you would have I, got the support potentially totally. did your friends and mm-hmm. people in your life were they supportive of your going this direction yeah i, I that was how it, the next thing that happened was a friend of mine i was telling her I said, I need to find somebody I can work with one-on-one. And she was like, oh, I have a friend who does that. That's his work. And so I was like, give me his number. And then I just started, I worked with him out on the West Coast, but I live on the East Coast. So then he recommended me to somebody out here. Yeah, and it was kind of through word of mouth and friends because, you know, at this point, the FDA uh, approval hasn't come through yet. So while there are a lot of people who are training to do the work officially, and I'm really excited for when it happens, you know, there's the MAP trials and all that stuff, the MAPS trials. But um, in the meantime, there are quite a few folks that are doing super rigorous work, but they still have to be underground. So you're still underground in that respect. Mm -hmm. And these are doctors or people, medical people that you work with? Uh, the folks that I work with have done, you know, like taken a PhD in in psychology, like have done serious work in all different kinds of modalities, but have discovered how transformative this work can be and so have decided to to work in this way. And so it's it's been really an independent choice for those folks to get there, to get that level of certification. But, you know, I like it. I think there's something for me, there's something kind of East Coasty about being like, yeah, we're going to have this like serious rigorous training and then we're going to work with this practice that has these ancient roots, but we're going to like really combine these things. And I love that. 
and that's basically the origins of, of the whole thing, the East Coast mm-hmm. at Harvard and mm-hmm. yeah. with Leary and those people. Do you mm-hmm. take, is it psychedelic? Is it LSD? What is it that you're actually working with? Uh, it depends. I've, I've sort of, I've done a few different things over the years as we try to uh, just kind of shift. So we started out working with MDMA. And the reason that, that they do that is uh, the, the sort of roots of the tradition that I work with are actually mushroom uh, based psilocybin. But um when you're working with people like me who have a history of of trauma, they like to start with MDMA because of the way that MDMA acts on the brain. It kind of gives you this cushion of positivity, you know, notoriously as a club drug. It's like, I love you, man. Mm-hmm. You know, so if hug, you ima- hug, me. <laughs> hug me, if you imagine <laughs> that you took that sort of brain chemistry and you put it into an intention therapeutic setting, you get a situation where that sort of it's like a safety cushion of positivity is wrapped around the experience, which allows the psyche, you know, to drop those inhibitions and to go into material that the unconscious is blocking you from, but to experience it in a way that feels okay. So you're not re-traumatizing yourself. You're experiencing things or you're, you know, gaining access to material, but you're, you're a little protected in that way. So that's what we started with. And then LSD afterwards or how does it No, we have actually never worked with LSD. We've worked with psilocybin. I still can't quite work with psilocybin alone. Um, I still tend to do a little bit of MDMA with it because I, I still get pretty out of control. It's very hard for a therapist to work with. And so I like to go slow. Like the whole thing with this process is they want you to go slow. And there's no recreational part of it you never just do it take a mushroom to go I don't, walk in the woods I don't because I because of that out of controlness like I just would literally end up in traffic <laughs> I like maybe one day when more of this stuff is processed like I I'm like there must be a bottom to this like there mm. must be you know I feel that there's an end I haven't reached it yet and I imagine that like once I've worked through the demons it'll all be less scary and I won't really need a babysitter anymore but right now that's still not the case do you ever feel that that's going to impact your art you know, negatively, mm-hmm. I mean, these demons, because I feel like that's something that you're processing in your work as well, yeah. right? You mean uh, getting over the demons? Yes. Oh, that... sure. I mean, I'm already so boring. Like, how much more boring I am in the last couple of years now that I'm not, like, just fighting unconscious forces and, like, doing wild things in my life to compensate? I'm so much more of a boring person. But I don't actually think, I don't honestly think that my work is suffering because now I'm going into all kinds of explorations that I wouldn't have gone into. I'm continuing to scare myself and challenge myself creatively. Like uh, anything you can relate is yeah, that makes or, you feel that way? Like right now, I I did this thing two years ago where I just kind of like winged out. Actually, it was one night after a therapy session. Sometimes on the night following a therapy session, I, I don't sleep at all. Just like one of those weird things. And um And this time to like pass the time while I wasn't sleeping, I started writing a story in my head. And then that just took off. And I, I spent like, you know, weeks just like kind of in a spell, just like, like writing the story. And I'm not a writer. So it's like kind of a weird thing. I was like, okay, this is happening. And then I just put it aside for two years. And then I just picked it back up. And I was like, you know, I think even though this isn't good as a piece of writing, I actually think that this might be a script because I, you know, I've been working on these animations. That's right. Yeah. So I'm doing stuff like that where I'm like, well, this is new for me. Um, so animations, is that connected to your, this exploratory work at all, do you think? Is, or is that just too separate? I mean, how do you say, yeah. can you separate the, like what you do 
Yeah, I mean, certainly it's connected. I've wanted to do animations for like 20 years. So it's, you know, it has has way deep roots. You know, certainly some of the imagery that's coming up in the animation, some of the processes uh, that are happening in the animations are directly related. It's like that thing where you can't really separate it. Anything that's happening in my life is happening in my art. Like, that's just how it is for me. And so there's there's these kind of unconscious characters that have come off. There's this figure called Tarantula Mother, or there's this, like, house that's splitting open. You know, there's these things that kind of entered my uh, conscious language through this therapeutic work that are, that are showing up in the animations as well. So that's coming, continuing to be part of the story. These are your archetypes or mm-hmm, totally. things that people will be, you know, looking at and trying to understand. <laughs> Do you think that, um, I mean, your personal story is intense, do you think people need to know about that to appreciate your work or to get your work? You know, I don't. And for some reason, that's always been important to me. I like the feeling that somebody could walk in off the street and have, you know, with the animations that you could have a kind of a hypnotic, mesmerizing uh, experience. And that knowing my story would deepen your experience of it, but it wouldn't be necessary. You know, I like to kind of meet people at a variety of levels. Yeah, and I think that's important. And I could say for myself that that's been my case because I didn't mm-hmm. really know a lot about this prior to you know having seen your work mm-hmm. on the walls originally. Totally. So, yeah, so let's some of that story. Let's go back in time a little bit. So when you were started doing, I know uh, you went to art school. Mm-hmm. You didn't really feel the, the idea of going being in a gallery and, and just working in, in that space. You mm-hmm. wanted to be a little bit make a difference in in the society already right Mm -hmm. at that point what was that why why did you feel that was not enough was that had something to do with your own uh politics or you know i think it might have just been it was very instinctual it was like this kind of rage-based drive to make something you know i think it was totally instinctive it was like being young and being like what is art and what can it be and how do I exist within that? I feel like there's this real kind of need when when you're totally immersed in creativity to make a space for yourself, to make a space where you can exist within. I knew like how much creativity meant to me and I knew that it couldn't just be a square on a wall. It can also be a square on a wall. I make squares on walls all day. I love that. It's super fun. But but it's, I want those to be part of a larger cosmology. I want them to be part of a larger experience. I just care so much about it. It's like, I want, I want it to be in my life. I want it to be something I experience. And so there was, you know, all these kind of different feelings of pushing against objecthood and pushing against materiality and then being like, but I'm obsessed with New York City. And like, this is the greatest thing that ever happened. You know, I was from a small town. I'd never even seen the city. I never, there was from, so uh, Florida, Florida, Daytona right. beach. Yeah. So this is like, New York was a revelation for me. I mean, I'm totally like a total. Cause you went to school here. That's how you came. Was exactly. that the first time you were here when mm-hmm. you went to school? Yeah. And I was a teenager before the internet. So mm-hmm. if you can imagine like my whole concept of art is like Vincent van Gogh book from the library, yeah. which is great, but <laughs> it's okay. It's only one small thing. And I sit here and I'm like, what is that? You know, and like looking at like all the graffiti in the subway tunnels and looking at like, you know, Richard Serra's like molten metal sculptures at PS1, all these things that are challenging my concept of what art can even be and being like, oh God, I want to be a part of that process. 
And then, so how was it your first piece outdoors? That uh, mm. first of all, women weren't particularly common in, in that space then mm. or now, right? Yeah. It's a very physical mm-hmm. work. Did you have a crew that you went around with already? Because I know you're, you know, very community based, which mm-hmm. is something else I want to talk about. Which in your mm-hmm. practice, which mm-hmm. I think is major too. So at first I was just doing little things, a little poster here. Then I got kind of obsessed with stickers. And then how I kind of got into the more kind of organizing spirit was there were all these street level billboards and I wanted to, I just wanted to cover the entire street in a day. And I was like, well, you know, it would be, it would be nice if, if this could be dozens of people's paintings, not just mine. And so I started just going door to door at my school and being like, hey, we're going to do this thing on this day, da, da, da. And that process just taught me like a bunch of things. Mainly there's power in numbers and that when you do something together, you feel amazing about it. You know, you've all feel great about this thing that you've done. And so, um, yeah, it kind of started there. But it takes the first person to do that, to mm-hmm. knock on the door, yeah. which is what you do. Right. Yeah. And, and from then on, you are still doing that, aren't you? Working mm-hmm. with organizing i don't know how it works in the background of yeah. what your power is to get all these people <laughs> to do it at what you want <laughs> i mean sometimes it doesn't you know that i've had major failures oh, where it just That's doesn't happen no, for sure yeah <laughs> then if you're like okay we're doing this we're doing this and everyone's like yeah not not listening <laughs> it's about when the idea clicks you know <laughs> you mm-hmm. said earlier that you didn't you did the, the oh, yeah. grown-up thing and you didn't ride your bike here in the 10 degree weather <laughs> yeah. bravo but you also have an affiliation with a bicycle group, right? That's like sort of uh, radical bike- bikers. And... Oh, those are friends of mine. We're, we're not, I would, I'm not like, it's. there's a, a bike club called Black Label and yeah. they throw like bike kill and do these things. They're friends of mine. I'm not in Black Label, oh, but, I, but I love them. Yeah, they're Why like long time friends. Uh, you know, I don't know. I well, just... How do you know you're not? Today? <laughs> <laughs> They'll probably I never, claim I you. I never got the secret invitation. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have the membership card? I don't. No, no but long time friends and really love. I mean, it's sort of part of the larger community of folks in Brooklyn that are just doing, you know, building shit themselves, doing things the wrong way, backwards, twice, bigger, like all over the place, you know. And how did you connect with them, let's say, for as one group? Because um, there's yeah. others as, yeah. as you move on, right? That kind of started, there was a group called the Madagascar Institute that was like throwing these kind of street parties that I connected with early on. There was all these different people. Well, what were... attracts you to those groups? Is it the energy or is mm-hmm. it the work that they're doing? Yeah. It started because I wanted to throw a street party. And I was like, it was looking at, do you remember Reclaim the Streets? It was like this kind of slash political organizing thing. You know, we were doing, we were doing huge critical mass at the time. There's all these kind of things that were happening sort of right around like organizing against the Iraq war was like a, was like a lot of things were tied together where there was this sense of like politics and art and like about being in the streets and about reclaiming public space and that really tied into to street pasting and then and then just looking out for like who else is doing this who can I learn from and then who's like just gonna like invite me to fun ridiculous things and so we all kind of found each other that way and that was also really the community that the rafts were born of because you know once I knew all these people and they all had these insane skill sets then I was like oh, we can do this actually and, and you're referring to the rafts that went uh, down, down the Mississippi, down Mississippi mm-hmm. to New Orleans, which was what a two year project. Yeah, it was two years. Down there? You know, we only made it to St. Louis. We wanted to make it to New Orleans. Wow. Spiritually, made it. We made it to New Orleans in the form of a project called the Music Box, which has a lot of similar community, but physically, we only made it to St. Louis. What is your process of going into a community? I know right now you're working in Philadelphia. I was. Yeah, oh, I were? have. I have done have some work in Philly, mm-hmm. working with people. Uh, opioid addicts, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And 
uh, helping them through art. So mm-hmm. art has become therapeutic mm-hmm. Absolutely. for yourself, for, yeah. for others, and you're helping organize people to experience that as well. Uh, how, does, how does that manifest itself? Because then you have other cities, you have Philadelphia, mm-hmm. you went to Haiti mm-hmm. to help reconstruct uh, some buildings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the earthquake there. So Haiti was a project where... Um, it was it was self-instigated. It was post-earthquake, and it was just like a big uh, response. And then it ended up lasting a decade because sometimes that level of community-based work is slow. Um, and then there's other times like Philly where I was invited. And that's a really, you know, the thing that I learned, the kind of, the, the, the like takeaway lesson through all of that is that the most important thing is to have a really vital group of local organizers who are already self-organized and, and trying to make their world better. And then you can 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 connect with that group and kind of work together. Because if you're an outsider, at least that's what I found. I can't just show up alone, that I need to kind of be with other folks who are already doing the community organizing, who are already, you know, know what the needs are. Right. You don't want to be like an outsider who suddenly shows up and tells everyone what to do. <laughs> exactly. Like, like that's as usually yeah. it works. And it's also just not going to work, I think, a lot of the time. You know, people people are going to hear you. Wasn't but. that an issue in Haiti for a little bit? Is when, when you went there mm-hmm. to help, people... We're commenting, what are you doing, white woman, coming to Haiti, trying to tell us what to do. (laughs) Not from inside Haiti at all. Um, You know, folks in Haiti, we we found a really great uh, group that we connected with right away, and it really has become like family. So from inside Haiti, the the relationship has been wonderful. But of course, people outside who, you know, there's, I think, a couple things going on. You know, one is that people who haven't done work like that, it's sort of hard to get what goes into it. It's very easy to criticize. You know, and then there are some very real dynamics where, you know, to be a white person in a helping position is to reinforce all these issues of white supremacy. It's not that the work is perfect. It definitely has its flaws. It's just that the good is so much more important than being stopped by, uh, like, issues that feel... Well, like in that community, we talk about those issues, but we we have like made a decision to not let that stop us from doing the work. And we've both decided on that. So, yeah, I think it's one of those things where you you kind of accept that there's ups and downs and there's imperfections and you just try to uh, find the greater good. Yeah. The end justifies the means in this case. I think that you're helping people. They're they're benefiting from it. And yeah, it's like we've made an agreement. You know, we know what the issues are and we've decided to keep going. And so what about your relationship with the art world as, you know, as like an outsider mm-hmm. at the same time, mm-hmm. you know, you still got to work and you got to yeah. you want to be recognized mm-hmm. and, totally. and seen. Yeah. So is that <laughs> have you been able to reconcile that, that too? I know you have a great uh Benefactor and Jeffrey Deitch. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. The thing I think, once I really found my voice creatively outside of institutions, all of a sudden I thought, oh, institutions sound great. Like, let's do some institutions. Why not? Because I think that it was it was this feeling like that there was like a chute that I was being led down this kind of cattle chute. And I was like, I'm not going in there. But then once I kind of knew what creativity meant to me and what art could be. And I knew that I could always keep a practice whereby I was trying to figure out how to like enter the world in ways that mattered to me. Then working in institutions was like, oh, fantastic. And we're going to do this. Why not? Institutions are also a form of space and public space and also uh, 
you know, you got to survive. And like, I love, I'm so grateful for the fact that my work has a place in the art market. Like so much of our work in Haiti, so much of, of other projects that I've been able to do, you know, we've done a ton of fundraising, but at moments when those, when that fundraising, when there's a gap and we got to finish the work, I just sell art and it's, been terrible for my savings. I have no retirement, <laughs> yeah, but it's say. been great for the projects. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's nice to have that asset uh, available. Right? Absolutely. And I understand though, at first you weren't that excited about going into a gallery. You had to be convinced and have your arm <laughs> twisted. <laughs> I mean, I guess, you know, I think I was just a weirdo and like shy and yeah, I guess I had a lot of different kinds of, uh, of feelings and opinions and a lot of consternation about, you know, what is this and how does it feel? And is it going to crush the spirit of my work? Because this, I felt really alienated by the experience of galleries as like a kid coming from Daytona, you know, and like I said, while a lot of my childhood was actually a pretty normal middle-class childhood, like from the age of 10 onward, like you would have known the difference. But still like the kind of earliest roots were this like very raw, very ragged, very poor, very like outsider kind of childhood. And so I think like that kind of stays with you. And so there was always this feeling of like, but where's the art for people who feel like I feel? And that answer has always been to try to figure out other ways besides the white cube. Which is the street for the most part. Which has been the street. You know, in the last two years, I've stopped street pasting because I really need to learn other things creatively. And it's it takes up such a big place in my brain, um, which has been a hard decision because it's like been such an I important. Bet. It's yeah, it just was like everything. And I still feel I still really stand by the importance of it. I just feel like as a creative being, I have to learn new things or I'll die. <laughs> but I'm sure there's like a huge rush of excitement that also, you, you feel. You yeah. know, how am I going to get that again? What do I have to do? It doesn't yeah. quite work in the gallery spaces. <laughs> Well, yeah. But even though I, I saw this photo, which was amazing, from a Deitch, a show you did in the Jeffrey Deitch mm -hmm. Gallery a few years ago. Many years ago, yeah. Many years ago. I mean, there's one now, isn't there? Oh, that, yeah, that's yeah, just yeah. off. But oh, I'm okay. talking about the one some mm -hmm. years ago yeah. where you're actually being carried by <laughs> your fans or oh. the people in the yeah. gallery as like a rock star, like sort of floating above so, the crowd. Yeah. It was really epic. Yeah, I think it was a whole confluence of events that night where there was like a bunch of art events in the neighborhood, plus my show. And people were excited about it. It was my first show. So the street was totally packed. The whole gallery was totally packed. And then we had Japanther playing. And they were like this super amazing, energetic, fun band. And we had them like illegally playing out of a box truck. It was like this whole thing. So this moment just kind of coalesced. And my friend just kind of as a cheeky gesture, just like, popped me up to crowd surf <laughs> and everyone and was like suddenly, okay there she goes look at her <laughs> it was really epic, and did you have yeah. your bike crew there as well and oh yeah i mean we were of them, all and you like went off to brooklyn afterwards and <laughs> Yeah, we were, I mean, so many of those folks were the folks that, you know, had helped build that show. All the, like, there's so many creative people in Brooklyn that are helping each other execute their projects, you know, also. So, so. you feel like there's still a community in Brooklyn and... Yeah, there is. For artists and... Yeah, it's harder. Because people always put down New York now, you yeah. know, and if you move oh, to New York now, right. and you probably yeah. came in just at the at that point when yeah. things were changing mm -hmm. It's true. I mean, it's different and it's harder and that's no doubt, but, um, but there's, I mean, it's... It's folks are here. Folks are holding on. I have this uh, sense, you know, because of the world and the times that we're in and the politics and no need to get into mm -hmm. details around that. I think we know what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. But that art has a way potentially of actually breaking through all of that, you know, noise mm -hmm. that's out there 
and people with the fake news and so on. I'm still waiting for that thing that's going to make everyone go like, yeah, mm. that's now I get it and everyone can get it. You know, right. if there is something of mm. that nature that can be created, right? I don't know, that sort of sends Such that. Such a good question. Uh, yeah. Well, I feel, you know, that you're potentially could be <laughs> that person. <laughs> because that's something that does what like what's the that's just that that the artist has because mm -hmm. they're not thinking in the most linear mm -hmm. ways mm -hmm. of, you know and, mm -hmm. and looking at the world in that in the way most people do yeah. that because of that they can create an image that will break through mm -hmm. all the noise mm -hmm. and suddenly people mm -hmm. will yeah mm -hmm. we need to be you know better to each other right. i mean i think a, a, a lot goal. of your work is empathy mm -hmm. uh is, is, you know, that you're, you know, for example, with your opioid mm -hmm. addicts and mm -hmm. Johan Har uh, Hari, Hari. Mm -hmm. yeah. who has written about addiction quite mm -hmm. a bit. Chasing and, the Scream. Yeah, book. Chasing the Scream, which is great. And it has in there, uh, he talks about empathy, I think. Mm -hmm. It's just understanding that these are just real people and you don't have to scorn them and, totally. you know, try to, like, ignore them. and Absolutely. That you know, once you start seeing them as real mm -hmm. people, everything changes. Totally. Yeah, and there's like this punishment culture that we're locked into and this shame and blame culture. And, you know, that was what happened when I read Gabor Mate's book and I was able to see my own family in a new way. And I was like, oh, you're not just addicted to opiates because you're a bad person who doesn't actually love your kids. You are do love your kids. You're struggling, like so difficult just to try to medicate this pain that you've never found a way to heal. And the amount of empathy that I felt for them when I connected those dots, I was like, this has to be something that I share. This has to be something that goes out in the world because there are have to be more people like me that are in that same position. You know, in the, the work in Philly, so there's this group called Philly Mural Arts. They're incredible. They walk the talk. They do the work like almost no organization I've ever seen. And they really believe in art as a transformational factor. And it's real for them. Like they're working in prisons. They're working in the epicenter of the opioid crisis on the eastern seaboard. Like this area that's really like nothing I've ever seen. And I've been a New Yorker for over 20 years. Um, but like the level of human suffering, people are overdosing on the street multiple times a day. The people are nodding out. People are homeless. It feels so terrifying and dangerous in this in this area. And Philly Mural Arts is like, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna be in the middle of that and we're gonna provide people a space to get clean, sit down, wash their hands, be respected, and make some art for a couple hours. You know, and you're like, wow, really art? Like is art what we need in that situation? And then you you see how it works and you're like, oh, it absolutely is. And I actually just learned recently, I was down in Alabama and I was talking to this professor, uh, I think her name is Barb Bondi, and she's doing all this kind of MRI research on the way that drawing affects the brain and the way that it essentially reinforces the same areas of the brain that are impaired, uh, at least by what if I understood her properly, what I was getting was that it re it kind of builds up the sort of higher level, like prefrontal cortex, like a lot of impulse uh, control and like reasoning. And these are the areas that are going offline when you're in, when you're engaging in your addiction because of stress, because of the way trauma affects the brain and so on. And so not only I think is there a scientific argument actually to be made that art making is therapeutic, I think, you know, just spiritually, just being like, here's a space where people can be respected sit down, get calm, get centered and like get to a place where maybe they can make a different decision. But it's like you're not just going to like necessarily walk in off the street and like and like, you know, do the rational thing right away. 
But it's like if we can get calm, get connected, you know, like Johan Sari said, it's like about connection. And so if there's a rupture in connection and if building a community space, drawing together, working together can start to rebuild that connection, then you can start to rebuild your life from there. And a ton of the folks that I've that I worked with uh, over a year ago are clean now. Like I, I've been talking to them and like, Oh, like so-and-so you talked to so-and-so and they're like, send me pictures and he's gained 20 pounds. He looks super healthy, you know, and that wasn't just their work. There's prevention point down the block. There's all these different services in the neighborhood that are trying to help folks. But the fact is like, there's, there's like, it's working, you know? Well, it's think. I mean, they say writing is thinking mm. and I'm, I imagine painting or doing art is also thinking. Mm. And mm-hmm. if you can get people to just stop Mm-hmm. You know, and do that and give right. them the space to actually start thinking yeah. about other things than just survival day to day and what it's going to be and yeah. what where they're going to get their pills yeah. and things. Yeah. Uh, that's probably a huge thing. Um, you know, with regard to cannabis, you know, they one of the arguments for the legalization today has to do with opioids because they keep mm. finding uh, proof or at mm. least statistically mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, pl- when cannabis is legal, the uh, opioid addiction goes mm. down. Yeah, I can imagine that. Yeah. And the, the thing about the the opioid, I feel like the thing that's that's the most important for me and the reason that I that I talk about it so much is that I think that the more we can get uh, like programs happening where you're dealing with the traumatic root of the addiction in a compassionate and reparative way. And there are all these new therapies, you know, there's, there's the work with psychedelics, there's cannabis, there's all of these things where you're, where you're helping people, you know, either calm the nervous system or access unconscious material. But then there's also uh, EMDR, which is about bilateral stimulation of the nervous system while you're working through trauma. I've worked with that in tandem with my psychedelic work, um, you know, in the months afterward. And, uh, and, and there's somatic experiencing, there's all this kind of new work that's being done around realizing how we unwind trauma that's been built into the nervous system. Yeah, because I imagine that most people have some trauma. Everyone has some, and right? And it's, uh, you know, whether it's yeah. passed down from mm-hmm. family mm-hmm. trauma that then right. you're, you're don't even know about in many yeah. cases until mm-hmm. much later or never. And mm-hmm. you're just trying to figure out why you, or you can't figure out why you feel this certain right. way. Kind of epigenetic stuff. Yeah. There's all kinds so of things. So you've become kind of really a real student of, of all of this and I very really knowledgeable. Have, yeah. yeah. Were you a good student in school? Did you? <laughs> <laughs> I was a nerd. Yeah. <laughs> you were? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I'm really like, I, I just want to inhale a subject. You know, when I started to learn about all this stuff about trauma, then I just, I, you know, I would just li- audiobooks because I carve a lot. So I just inhale audiobooks while I'm carving or building something. You know, it's like you get to where your hands are moving, but your mind has a little free time. So I like to just learn everything I can about a subject in that space. So you think there's more to learn? That there's yes. Just- Yes. And it's, it's like, for me, it's like the first step is this compassionate shift to be like, okay, let's stop blaming people and let's just focus on how do we repair the injury. And then the second piece is how do we repair the injury? What are all these methods that we're developing? Well, what about, you know, the, the brain itself, you know, Mm -hmm. that we're still just learning about it's just mm-hmm. barely started uh, yeah. understanding and a mm-hmm. lot of the therapies have to do with pills right i mean even opioids for yeah. example were yeah. like supposed to be helpful right totally yeah it's like and it's i love the david foster wallace uh quote he says he says taking you know an opioid an antidepressant anything that just that just stops the he's like it's like shutting off the fire alarm because you don't like the noise 
instead of looking for where the fire is at. And I think that the the, the sort of new therapies are about looking for where the fire is at. In my, the f- very first thing that happened to me when I really got properly into a psychedelic therapy program is I started going into um, infantile regression like right away and saying all these things, which later ended up making sense. You know, when I would first hear myself talking like a baby and saying all these kind of crazy stories, you know, within my therapy sessions, I was like, what is this? Like, what is going on here? And, uh, and, you know, and then later I'd talk to my sister or I'd kind of look at journals or different artwork that I had made. And I'd realize that these kind of thoughts and feelings had been in my, in me, in this really buried kind of lost way that I couldn't connect with. They were showing signals, but I couldn't contact it. And then in the therapy, for some reason, you know, all the different combination of your intention and the chemicals and the whole thing, I was able to just essentially have like a direct line to that part of myself, which is so powerful. God, yeah. Would you have these recorded? I don't. I kind of wish, but I remember a lot of it, which is unusual. Yeah. Like it's somehow I have like the, the sort of observer is present and I can't control my actions or what I'm saying almost at all, but I can watch and I can see it. And so I'm, I'm remembering a lot of what's happening, even if it just feels like it's this kind of weird automatic thing that's going on. So the regression to childhood under Mm -hmm. supervision of psychedelic Mm -hmm. therapy Mm -hmm. was like the key to, you feel unlocking all of that? I really do. I feel like it was the key to unlocking a lot of, of huge tensions and the, you know, the ways that it's showing up in my life are, for example, um, I used to have really chaotic, uh, like love relationships and personal relationships. And I've, I've lately been able to have a really calm, connected, stable relationship, which is a huge change. I mean, yeah, huge. But, but it's not, it's not, it's not exciting. It's exciting. <laughs> I bet. Right. <laughs> I love it. I think it's great. And the other thing is that my house, I was like essentially like a hoarder's house. I had like four feet of garbage everywhere. And I managed to clean that out and to like actually try to keep a space that feels like fit for humans. And I'm like, wow, this is like, I'm behaving differently. Self-respect. Like, yes. One day I looked around and I was like, I don't like this. But before I was in such this kind of weird convoluted state of mind that I didn't even get that I was unhappy. I I just, there was all these tensions. I couldn't identify what they were. And now I'm starting to kind of just, yeah, be able to, to value myself and care for myself and be like, you know what? You deserve to not be like fighting all the time and wasting all your energy on these sort of crazy chaos. And you also deserve to like be able to have a clear path to the bathroom. <laughs> yeah. That, the minimum. Minimum. <laughs> and so, so each time you go and have one of these sessions, does it, you pick up where you left off or you just sort of go and see what happens? And- it's totally hard. It's hard to know what's going to come up. You know, I try to set a little intention. You know, we do preparation work. I also try to keep up with a fairly regular therapy when I can. So I'm there's sometimes there'll be things I'm working on, you know, and usually what I do is just whatever's up for me at the time. I just set the intention to be like, you know, I've been thinking a lot about that time when I was seven, when blah, blah, blah happened. It's feeling kind of haunting to me. I'm going to set the intention to work there. But you don't know. You really, I really don't know what's going to come up. It's one of those things where it's just like surprise and then you, the session happens and what comes comes. And you can encourage that. You know, you can bring props that remind you of the time. You can, you know, do a bit of writing. You can set the intention and you can guide it a little bit. Um, but I can't guide it totally. It tends to surprise me. Wow. That sounds amazing uh, process to go through. So yeah. I'm glad it's working out for yeah. you. So what else do you have going on otherwise in your art life that yeah. uh, you can share? Some, anything, new projects? Yeah. and 
Well, I just uh, my show is up for two more weeks at the Jeffrey Deitch Gallery. At the Jeffrey Deitch so, Gallery, uh, yeah, amazing. which that's the animation. Yeah, it's my first time properly showing my animations, and you know, I really the thing that I love the most about Jeffrey is that he sees where things are going. He doesn't just see what he's looking at; he he gets what's happening next. And I I showed him like not ten seconds of an animation, and he was like. And uh, and I was like, yeah, and then I was like trying to do all this and that and the other. And he was like, no, 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 stop all this and that and the other. Focus on what you care about. You know, he's so good at that. And uh, and because it, for me it was so new that I was a little scared to uh, kind of give it my all. And and he really helped encourage me to to be like, you know, what is it that you're really interested in? It's this. Just do it. Like, just do it. Let's make a show and it'll just be that. And, and uh, you know, just kind of give yourself permission to change creatively. And so that was super fun, and it's going to be open for two more weeks. I'm going to actually give a talk about psychedelics and therapy to close the show. I want to go. When Great. is it? It's um, uh, February 1st at 4 p.m. <laughs> Can't make it? No, I won't be here. Sorry. <laughs> All right. Um, and then, you know, what I'm working on right now is I'm actually in the test stages to see if, if, it's, if, if I – have like the attention span and if the story is strong enough and if I can get enough support that I might actually try to make a feature animation film which is like a pretty weird thing for me but but I like I said I wrote this story and it exists and it sort of has a certain presence and it's it's kind of gaining a little presence in my mind somehow and so I'm starting to build the puppets I I did an experiment last week where I I was like, I wanna, I'm want i going to see if I might work with live actors. And so I painted somebody and we did all these experiments. I decided I think I want to build the build puppets instead. Um, but so I'm in that kind of exploratory phase where I'm like, how's it going to work? I need a scriptwriter. I need this. I need all these different things to, to sort of start to pull in that team to be like, how can this make sense? Because it's, you know, I'm in way over my head, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds amazing. And I, I'm sure you're a great writer because I could just tell by talking with you. Oh, thanks. And, and even at that show at Deitch, I mean, it was oh, it was. Um, also performance you had live mm-hmm. i mean that was amazing to see the live people Thanks. wearing your yeah artwork yeah, carrying a baby right. the one right with the baby. coco that was an incredible performance wasn't it with her yes. child yeah so yeah. all of that coco was too. so that was amazing as well thanks thank you very much absolutely Callie it's been Curry, great to talk to aka you. swoon <laughs> for joining me in the booth today yeah thanks for giving me the opportunity to share all this stuff Thank you. You've been listening to Light Culture, brought to you exclusively by Burb, where cannabis clothing and culture intersect. Please follow us on Instagram at ShopBurb and subscribe to this podcast at shopburb.com forward slash lightculture, as well as iTunes and all the regular distribution platforms. <laughs>